Well, I have a story this morning about a boy who wanted to inherit his father's farm. I don't know what it is, but there's something about a farm growing up as a kid that's just a lot of fun. I was just telling somebody the other day about how when we shot up to the UP of Michigan, we stayed on a farm for about two weeks, and as a young boy of about 10 or 12, I loved it. We wore cutoffs every day, and that was it, and tennis shoes. And we played in the barns, we went down to the creeks, and we dug worms. We had to watch out not to get shocked underneath the, the electric wire, but that's where the biggest night crawlers were, and on and on and on and on. There's something about a boy and a farm that's fun. In fact, just last night, I was putting Matthew to sleep, and I don't even know how it came up, but he looked at me very seriously. He says, Dad, I know what I want for Christmas. I said, sure, what do you want for Christmas, Matthew? He said, I want seeds from a real farmer and a cow to ride around. <laughs> Isn't that right? Yeah, you tell me, yeah, that's it. You got it, Dad. <clears throat> we'll see. But as this story goes, it's kind of a parable of sorts, but this young man wanted to inherit the farm, and it probably had a cow, and it did involve some seeds, and this young man went off to school, and he got all kinds of training and, and learned all kinds of techniques that his father knew nothing about. His father was more schooled in the old school farming, and you watch nature and different things, and, and you just kind of get a sense and a feel for what will do well here and there, and he had a wealth of, of experience. But the son, on the other hand, he'd been to school and he knew all about how to do these soil samples and to check for pH and alkalinity and, and all these other things in the soil. And so it came time when he said, Dad, I know how to run this farm. I, I'm capable. I'm ready. Will you let me do it? Well, the father was getting a little bit tired. He was getting quite ready to hand it over. And he said, here's the deal. I will sign the entire farm over to you on one condition. Oh boy, I'll do it. Anything. Tell me, Dad. What? I'm going to take your mom on a trip, and we're going to travel. We've never been to Europe. We're going to go off to Europe. We're going to see everything there is to see there, and I won't be here to bug you. You can do whatever you want here on the farm as long as you follow a few specific directions. Sure. What are they, Dad? In each field, I have mapped out. In fact, here's a piece of paper, and he pulled something out, and he had there the whole farm, and in each field, he had specifically listed what was going to be planted where. So we got soybeans over here and corn, and some of you know what I'm talking about. You even map out your little plot, right? We're going to have five rows of this, and on and on and on. He says, you can do your soil samples, you can do your tests, you can do whatever you want. Just promise me you will plant what I have listed here. Is that it? Yep. All right, we'll see you. Have fun. And they took off. And he was just going to town. He was going to all these places. And sure enough, Dad knew what he was talking about. He checked the soil here. And for soybeans, perfect. He checked the soil over here in this little valley here for corn. Soil said, perfect for corn. Man, Dad really is on top of things. He got all the way around on that sheet until this one little place down by this lazy river. And that's where he was supposed to plant something that the soil tests were saying was not going to work. I don't remember if it was broccoli or green beans or whatever it was. We'll just say it was green beans. And he scratched his head and he said, green beans will never work here. 
The soil is just all wrong. I mean, they won't even grow. This must be a typo. This is, has to be a mistake. You know what would grow really well here? And he came up with his own idea. I'm going to plant cabbage. And so he planted his cabbage. And so time goes on, and it gets to the end of the summer, and his parents come home, and they're all suntan and worn out, and he's all excited. Dad, i got to show you the farm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It looks pretty good, son. You've, done, you've been really working hard. Oh, man, I've been working really hard, and, and look at how this corn's coming up over here. And he started showing them all the way around the farm. And the father was very impressed. Until, you know where this is going. They got to that lazy patch down by the river. And the father starts to scratch his head. And he says, oh, I, I know, Dad. You said you wanted me to plant soybeans here, but I did the soil test. And soybeans have just been terrible. They wouldn't have even grown here. It was just all wrong. I figured it had to be a mistake. And so I planted cabbage. And look how beautiful the cabbage are. I mean, the cabbages are like this. And his father did the eyebrow. And he said, I gave you very specific instructions. Yeah, I know, Dad. And I told you to plant everything as I told you to plant it. And I did. I did everything just as you said. But here you didn't. Yeah, I know, but, but I obeyed in everything else. And the father said, you didn't obey me one bit. You did everything the way you thought it should be planted, and it all lined up with what you came out on your soil tests, except for in this one plot. You've completely disobeyed me. And as the parable goes, the son did not inherit the farm or the cow. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how willing we are to obey until it rubs against what we want to do. Have you noticed that? Has anybody had somebody that works under them and, and they're all agreeable as long as they agree with what should happen? But as soon as they see something that they would certainly do different, problems. But isn't it true? The true test of obedience is when it doesn't make any sense but you do it anyway. I want to look at a story with you. It's in the Old Testament here in 1 Samuel chapter 15. But we have to get a little context before we jump into today's story in chapter 15. But Saul has been crowned king and he's been doing a wonderful job until chapter 13. And it's there in chapter 13 that you will recall the Philistines were going to attack Israel. And for seven days, the men are quaking with fear, waiting for God's prophet Samuel to come and offer sacrifices. But Samuel doesn't come, he doesn't come, he doesn't come. And the people grow very impatient until finally Saul himself offers the sacrifices, which was not lawful for him to do. And just as he finishes, here comes Samuel. 
And Saul is openly rebuked for not keeping the Lord's command. And we read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning verse 11. Samuel shows up and said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered, that's the first I, from me, that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not supplication to the Lord, have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord will have established, would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but not now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. If we continue reading, though, we don't see any form of repentance from Saul. And in fact, patriarchs and prophets tells us that Saul saw no great sin that he'd even done. He felt like somehow he had been mistreated, that he'd been embarrassed. treated unjustly. And so he doesn't repent, but rather he wants to vindicate himself, to make excuses for what has happened. Have you ever felt that tendency when you've been reproached? Yeah, but it wasn't my fault. We'll see the people. And that's where we find Saul. But Saul gets another chance. Turning now to our story today, 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is given another chance. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. That sounds like a second chance, doesn't it? Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Saul, I came to anoint you king. Now heed the voice, obey this time, and you will be reinstated. And we read on, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed from him on the way when he came back from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, both Kill both man and women, infant and nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. You see, the Amalekites were the first to wage war on Israel. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 and onward, tells us about the Amalekites. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt? When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies in your land, he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out, the verse says, the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget, end quote. 400 years, this execution, if you will, has been deferred. But the Amalekites had not turned from their sins. And God has given them, I believe, every opportunity to repent. But just like the door of the ark was shut, 
probation had closed. And so the command is very clear. Attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. This is very clear. This was to be symbolic of end times for what Isaiah 28 calls a strange act. Because God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but longs that all would turn from their wicked ways and repent. But after 400 years, it is time for him to execute judgment on the transgressors of his law. But why now, you may ask? Well, because similar to the days of Noah, this was required to preserve, I feel, the inhabitants of the earth from corruption and ruin. In order to save some, he must cut off those who have become so hardened in sin. This week I was speaking with a friend who has taken over the care of this little girl. I think she's about 10 months old, not even a year old yet. The DSS had to intervene and take her when she had a severe trauma to the head. Before that, her leg had been broken. Both wrists had been broken. And now her head is messed up to where she's going to have lifelong damage. And they said, just take this child for about a week while we contact other family members. Turns out, all of the other family members are not eligible to take this child. Helps you understand what the Bible's talking about when it says to the third and fourth generation. Not eligible. That's code for the family is so messed up they can't give her to anybody else. No aunts, uncles, grandparents, mother, everyone. And so you can better understand why at times God has to start over with a few. Because with every passing generation, they become so entrenched in sin. And this dis dysfunction perpetuates. So the command is given. What is to happen is made very clear. And so Saul summons his men in verse 4. But notice what Saul does in verse 7 of this story. Still in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah and all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And were unwilling... Key word. They were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Notice this is not a misunderstanding. Rather, they were unwilling to destroy that which they felt was good. And we see the seed of rebellion 
in the heart of Saul. And the Lord is grieved, and Samuel is grieved. In fact, he stays up all night in prayer. Verse 10, now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And while there's so much we could pull out of this story, I want to highlight three cautions, three pitfalls, if you will, in our Christian experience that we need to watch for and avoid at all costs. Caution number one, selective obedience. Because the will of God was clear, yet Saul felt he could improve on it. I'll follow God, but in my own way. It will be on my terms. I'll just tweak it a little bit. I have to breathe some life into it, massage it a bit. Certainly we can't take a literal reading of God's Word. And so we subject God's Word to our interpretation of it. What will best suit my needs? What will be more acceptable in this community in which I live and my neighbors and my friends? And we're willing to obey in all points, all points. We are faithful in our tithe, in our attendance, in our dress, in our diet and health habits. We even have refined our language. We obey 97% of the time. But there's that nagging 3%. That little pet rebellion, that pet sin. I don't believe we're talking about making mistakes on accident. And we're not even talking about longing to overcome a sin and falling yet again. We're talking about being unwilling, as the text says, to follow God's counsel on that given point. We're unwilling. Well, didn't you read? Yeah, I heard it. Well, aren't you going to? I don't think so. Yet partial obedience is really only disobedience made to look acceptable. Selective obedience really is simply palatable rebellion. Be careful, follower of Christ, of this perception that you are putting God first when really you're putting self first. So Saul stands as a warning to all of us of the dangers of disregarding, setting aside, ignoring God's word, because we're unwilling to destroy that which still appears good and pleasing to us. Caution number one, selective obedience. And so our story continues, verse 12. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he has set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, gone down to Gilgal. Kind of took the scenic route, wanted to make sure everybody saw. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. 
Now, I imagine in Saul's insecurity and embarrassment of the last run-in with Samuel, he's really trying to prove himself. He wants to set up monuments. This is a huge victory for them, and he wants to make sure everybody knows who really pulled this off. I mean, this is good PR. Let's show the people how incredible of a commander and chief they have. And so Samuel comes, and he says, I performed all the commandments of the Lord. We did just as he asked. Verse 14 is the first rebuke Saul gets. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Rebuke number one. Remember the story of David's grave sin with Bathsheba, and Nathan comes to David, and he tells this story, and David just becomes outraged, and with one simple phrase, you are that man, David just crumbles and falls apart. He knows like death. However, that's not the case here. Saul seems to be so far removed that he cannot spiritually discern. And it's as if he's not heard a thing. What is this sound of bleeding sheep in my ears? And verse 15, Saul said, they have, bought, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. It wasn't me, by the way. It was the people. And besides, we have a good plan. We're not just going to sell them for our own profit necessarily. We're going to sacrifice them to God. Never mind the fact that we won't have to sacrifice our animals. But look at our good intentions, Samuel. But he's not truly ignorant of what is going on because he still says, and the rest... We have utterly destroyed. Do you see his nagging conscience? And so Samuel responds again in verse 16 to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he, Saul, said to him, Samuel, Speak on. Maybe a little disrespectful. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, you were not head of the tribes of Israel, and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Rebuke number two, a little more straightforward this time. But notice Saul's response, verse 20. But I have obeyed. Can you hear the whine? I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back King Ahag of of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. In the very same sentence, in the same breath, he contradicts himself. I have obeyed, I have utterly destroyed, and brought back the king. It's like that country song, what part of no don't you understand? 
And so he says all these things, but the people, verse 21, took the plunder. This again, it's the people's fault, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Isn't that just as good? I mean, they'll be destroyed eventually, Samuel. Doesn't that count? And I imagine Saul justified and rationalized and redefined obedience in ways that you and I can be quite professional at. I imagine he thought, well, after I parade the king around a while, I'll do him in. He'll be no more. And we'll have this big ceremony. Everyone will be there. And I'll set up this big monument for myself. That sounds nice. And we'll sacrifice thousands of animals. I mean, why sacrifice our own if we have somebody else's? And then I'll kill the king in front of them all, and the people will just go crazy. They'll just love it. And so while pretending to serve God, Saul serves his own interests. In Patriarchs and Prophets, we read that this was Saul's most brilliant victory. And thus we see pride, I believe, rekindled. Caution number two, pride so often will lead to spiritual blind spots. How arrogant of Saul to have the audacity to think he can pawn off disobedience as obedience. And it was the same with Adam and Eve in the garden. It wasn't me. It was this woman that you gave me. You see, there is pride that breeds this spiritual blindness because he is replaced with me. Thy is replaced with my. And before long, we are rewriting Scripture to say things like, for my thoughts are higher than God's thoughts, and my ways are higher than God's ways. He has some good suggestions, but that doesn't mean they can't be improved upon. And in arrogance and pride, we rebel and think we know better than God. When a person convinces himself or herself that what God has clearly marked as moral poison when they've convinced themselves that that's desirable for the table of abundant living, we're in serious trouble. When all wrong appears to be all right in our eyes, we're setting our foot on forbidden ground. We put on the blinders. Our hearts have been hardened. Look how straight Samuel speaks to Saul, yet his response, but I did obey. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back King Ahag. Through Saul's pride and arrogance, he has developed a significant blind spot. And when one is arrogant, have you noticed you can't tell them a thing? No, it's in humility that we listen to the voice of the Lord. It's in humility that we pay attention to the voice of the Lord's anointed It's in humility that we ponder the rebukes of those close friends and ask, God, could this be true? Could this accurately reflect my heart, my motives? Lord, search me, try me if you find any wickedness in me. Lord, show it to me that I may remove it, that I may make things right by your your strength, by your power, that I may overcome. 
But sadly, pride does the opposite. So that even when the servant of the Lord calls one to accountability, like here in this story, we flat out deny it. Can't be. Friends, the father of rebellion and pride is very cunning. He can make right seem wrong and wrong seem right. God's word is our only safeguard. Christ even warned his disciples. John 16, verse 2, Jesus himself said, A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. From the days of the early church to the present, the most severe persecutions, you know this, against the servants of God have been waged in the name of religion. Time and time again. And we know it will be part of our future. With apparent zeal for God, we will be targeted in the name of religion. It's the devil's cleverest device to camouflage error as if it is truth. And for this reason, the true witness counsels the Laodicean church in Revelation. The faithful and true witness of Revelation 3 counsels us to put on spiritual eye salve that we may see. And what is eye salve? Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 233, tells us the eye salve is that spiritual discernment which will enable us to see the wiles of Satan and shun them, to detect sin and abhor it, to see truth and obey it. The deadly laziness of the world can and will paralyze our senses. Sin will no longer appear repulsive because we have been blinded by Satan, end quote. I believe that's the number one thing the devil's doing through media today. He is blinding our senses, shutting us down to where we can't discern anymore. We open up our Bibles and this is so boring. There's no screen. There's nothing flashing. It's not go, 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 move, move, move. He is searing our conscience with a hot iron, like it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. You might say, well, it's, it's a blind spot. How am I supposed to help it if it's a blind spot? Friends, if you're driving down the road, if you're aware of a blind spot, you don't just ignore it. You make extra effort to pay attention to it. You look over your shoulder before you go into that lane. Do you not? To ignore a blind spot is to say, I know it's there, but I don't really care. Beware of pride that leads to spiritual blind spots. Saul needed spiritual eyesalve, spiritual discernment, and we desperately need it too. So in picking up our story, Saul claims to have obeyed, he contradicts himself, he blames, he rationalizes, and then God's prophet speaks to Saul a third time in verse 22. So Samuel said, third rebuke here, has the Lord as great as has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey, and you know the rest, is better than sacrifice and to heed in the fat of rams. Saul, let me be clear. 
The Lord desires your obedience over everything else. Even sacrifices are unacceptable if it replaces real submission to God's will. Dick was talking about our motives when we give. Makes a difference, folks. Religious ritual always becomes a burden unless it is accompanied by appropriate, heartfelt repentance, love, and adoration for God. Otherwise, he says, don't bother. I don't want it. I don't need it. Was it wrong to offer sacrifices to the Lord? Is it wrong to be faithful in our church attendance? Is it wrong to return faithful tithes and offerings? Is it wrong to honor the Sabbath? Is it wrong to be a vegetarian? Is it wrong to visit the sick and feed the poor? But if it's done to excuse our blatant disobedience, I believe it's an insult to our God. To obey is better than sacrifice. Suppose there's a man, and he's cheating on his wife. He feels a little guilty about it. But he has means, and so he says, I'll just shower her with gifts. And so it's a little bit out of the ordinary because she starts getting some very lavish, beautiful, incredible gifts brought to her door. And at first, this seems very pleasing to her, and she's excited about it, and she likes it. But as the weeks pass, she finds out that he's involved in an affair. Let me ask you, at that point in time, how does she feel about the gifts? As the church, we are Christ's bride. The God we serve is jealous for our love. He says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Is it possible to simply go through the motions? But rather, God longs for our obedience because it shows our commitment to Him. To obey is better than sacrifice. It's your heart that I want. But Samuel's not done. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord and he has rejected you from being king. Did you catch that? Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft? Whoa! Think about that for a second. To rebel, to have a rebellious heart, a rebellious spirit, that's the sin of witchcraft. Your version might say divination. Friends, witchcraft is abhorred in Scripture and in the Christian community. Witchcraft is an abomination. Witchcraft is the devil's playground. So why don't we get rid of that word? We don't like that word, and so instead, it'll just be rebellion. But the reality is rebellion is the devil's playground. In what form did the first sin grow and develop? Friends, this is serious stuff. Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness. Pride is idolatry. It is putting oneself on the throne. And so Saul is now rejected as king. And notice it's only after judgment has been pronounced that Saul seems to have a change of heart. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 
Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and he tore it. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel, talking about God now, will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now. Please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. And Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. And you know the rest of the story. Samuel does what Saul should have done. Samuel mourned. The Lord grieved. Everyone was filled with sorrow and regret except for Saul. Saul has no sorrow for sin until he's met with judgment. He's more concerned with his reputation with the elders and with the people and what people will think than the wickedness he's done against his God. He doesn't even say, my God, he says, your God. Caution number three. If you've messed up, if you've tried to cover it up, lied about it, whatever it's been, come clean. Caution number three, self-serving repentance. Have you seen that before? Have you noticed that people don't know how to say I'm sorry these days? In true confession, and asking for forgiveness. Husbands, write this down. Address everyone involved. Avoid words like if, but, and maybe. Admit specifically. Acknowledge the hurt you have caused. Accept the consequences. Alter your behavior. And ask for forgiveness. Those are the steps. But today it sounds more like, well, I'm sorry you were offended. What is that? That's no apology at all. I'm sorry you felt bad, but I didn't do anything wrong. We're too proud to lower ourselves. We're too concerned about protecting our reputation. We're unwilling to possibly be wrong. And so we further damage things by offering a self-serving repentance. And I've seen this all too often. People in the church warring with one another over who is right. And it's all about justifying themselves. Have you seen it? Some are lobbying for their position, asking people to take sides, saying, please honor me before the elders, honor me before the church and the people. Folks, this is destructive. It's divisive. It's selfish to rip the church apart, to prove yourself right. I've got news for you. The church is not about you. And if we're willing to tarnish the reputation of God's bride in order to uphold our justification to the elders and to the people, then God help us. 
In contrast to Saul, we already referred to it when Nathan pointed out David's sin, his response was, I have sinned against the Lord. He becomes ill, he fasts, and for seven days he cries out to the Lord. We have his prayer in Psalms 51. We read good portions of it this morning. Have mercy on me, O God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me, as only you can do, a pure heart, O God. And do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And here we find the stark contrast between the repentance of David and that of Saul. Humble and teachable versus prideful and arrogant. Sorrow for sin versus sorrow for being caught. Fear of one standing before God versus the fear of one standing before the people. Man after God's own heart versus a man after the people's heart. True repentance versus self-serving repentance. One restores relationship. The other drives the wedge deeper. So how about us? Do we ever have selective obedience? Do we too have spiritual blind spots? Back in the late 90s, Our president was accused of immoral conduct. How could we forget? The ensuing drama that got our attention had all the ingredients of Saul's conversation with Samuel, really. There was attempts of evasion, blaming the opposing political party, blaming the intern herself for being flirtatious and obsessed. Then on January 26, 1998, the president declared... While pounding his fist on the podium, do you remember that? I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. But by August of that year, seven months later, it became politically necessary for the president to admit that he had, in fact, had an inappropriate relationship. You see, he was the president of the United States. The rules didn't apply to him. Selective obedience. He, too, had a pride that led to spiritual blind spots, I believe. And while he repented, I question whether it was genuine or self-serving. And while in our humanness, we hate to admit it, but all of us can identify with King Saul and President Clinton. For all of us have heard the undeniable accusation that we are guilty. We all at times have been selective with our obedience, knowing something was wrong but doing it anyway. We all at times have let pride have dominion. We all have spiritual blind spots and need the eye salve of heaven. And we all need to humble ourselves and repent. But the good news is, when we do, we have a loving Savior that is longing to forgive us 
and restore us and empower us and give us life and life more abundant. But he knows first self has got to go. God cannot fill a heart that's filled with self. I find hope in patriarchs and prophets here, 632 and 633, talking about Saul and where he slipped up. When called to the throne, she writes, Saul had a humble opinion of his own capabilities and was willing to be instructed. He was teachable. He was deficient in knowledge and experience and had serious defects of character. But the Lord granted him the Holy Spirit as a guide and helper and placed him in a position where he could develop the qualities necessary for a ruler of Israel. You ever feel inadequate? That's okay. God has placed you where you can grow spiritually and have those places where you're empty and where you you lack. He can fill those. He had a humble, he remained humble, seeking constantly to be guided by divine wisdom. But had he stayed that way, he would have been enabled to discharge the duties of his high position with success and honor. Under the influence of divine grace, every good quality would have been gaining strength while evil tendencies would have lost their power. That's what we want, isn't it? This is the work which the Lord proposes to do for all who consecrate themselves to him. There are many whom he has called to positions in his work because they have a humble and teachable spirit. Don't miss that. In his providence, he places them where they may learn of him, and he will reveal to them their defects of character. And to all who seek his aid, he will give strength to correct their errors, end quote. All of us are guilty, but how will we respond? Will we respond in such a way that restores relationship? Will we be humble? and teachable, open to seeing and correcting our blind spots? Will we respond in the nature of true repentance? Will we be like David or Saul? Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Jesus came to this earth to restore relationship. And through him, by looking to Christ, our relationship can be restored. It can be restored with him, and I believe it can be restored with each other. Will you allow him to break you this morning? It's the crux of the issue, isn't it? Are you willing to surrender, not 97%, but 100%? Dear Heavenly Father, We come to you humbly this morning, recognizing our own faults, our own deficiencies, all the ways that we lack, 
and all the ways that we need you desperately. Lord, may we not be prideful or self-sufficient. May we not look to the world for answers, but may we be so anchored in your word and in your truth. May we spend meaningful time with you each day that we may spiritually discern the pitfalls that surround us today. That we may be a man and woman not after the people's heart, but after God's own heart. We pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.